You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about a uh, new podcast. I think you should check out. It's from 20th Century Fox, and it's a show called Screen Dive. It's brand new, and it takes you behind the scenes of some of the legendary studio's most beloved films. You can take a trip down memory lane with the filmmakers and contributors behind all your favorites. The Sandlot, that is legitimately one of my all-time favorites. Young Frankenstein, The Devil Wears Prada, Super Troopers, Planet of the Apes. There's something for everyone. Subscribe now. The show is called Screen Dive and get started on your journey into the Fox filmography. It is available wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, like the long-form podcast, which starts right now. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hi. Nice to see you guys. Uh, you too. I haven't done an interview on the show in a long time. Yeah, it's where true. you been? What have you been up to? Yeah. Flaking. Yeah. <laughs> Nonsense. God, podcast godfathering. Shenanigans. <laughs> um, but you did do one this week. I did. I uh, talked to a podcaster. Mm. Madeline Barron, the host and reporter of uh, In the Dark. You guys listen to in the dark. This is oh, yeah. a, this. What I'm going to say. Uh, you stole this one from me. Uh, I'm an in the dark fan. Uh, I wanted to do this podcast. I'm very envious that you did this podcast. Of all of the uh, the entire spectrum of, I'm going to say loosely defined crime podcasts that have come out in the last five years or so. Uh, I find that I recommend uh, in the dark season one the most to people. Yeah, I, I season two uh, just wrapped maybe a month or two ago, and I thought that was also fantastic. Yep. Uh, Madeline is good at her job, yep. and uh, we talked about sort of like making the transition from reporter to podcast host, and uh, it was a good one. I've been waiting to do it for a while. If you're looking to make a transition in your life, maybe uh, from one field to another, um, good way to do it is starting an email newsletter. It helps people uh, know about what your field of expertise is, build an audience. Uh, you can start one for free with MailChimp without paying until you hit a certain number of subscribers. So there is nothing stopping you. Thanks to MailChimp for uh, sponsoring the show. And now here's Max with Madeline Barron. Hi, Madeline. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad that we are uh, doing this. Yes, me too. Our email thread started long ago. And That's a very nice way of putting it. 
Uh, well, it's on me. I wanted to talk in person. It's my fault that we haven't talked. Uh, but you're here in New York, and we, we like uh, we stole it. So thanks for coming. Yeah, glad to do it. Um, you were just saying before we turn on the microphones that um, you're here for like a conference, and people are going to ask you about uh, season two of In the Dark and, and your work. And you were saying like um, I was like uh, asking. Is it like getting like tiresome to talk about it all the time? And you were like, no, I actually never get to talk about it, which is surprising to me. Like, uh, why do you not have opportunities to talk about your work? I mean, we do once the season's over, but for the most part, I mean, most of our time is spent reporting something where we're not telling anyone what we're doing. So that's most of our lives, like on In the Dark or any investigative reporting team. So once we're done with it, it's actually nice to talk about it. So often, you know, like an episode will come out and people will, like the first person to ask me a question will apologize. Like, I'm sure you get this all the time. I'm like, <laughs> it just came out. I've literally not gotten this no question no ever before. Um, but yeah, and I think that, um, you know, we work on a team. So we do talk a lot on the team about our reporting. But it's always very interesting to see what other people make of it and what other questions people have. Well, one of the things I, I was so struck by was you. it seemed like you just went so deep into Mississippi you like moved there how long Mm -hmm. did you live there for nearly a year as I was listening to the show I I was just wondering about like how attached to the sort of like end product you you were or like how deep into that world you got but but maybe before we get there it might be worth it if you can just kind of like give us the like synopsis of the season yeah so this is a story about a man named Curtis Flowers who is from this small town of about 4,000 people Winona Mississippi And he was charged and convicted for the murders of four people in 1996 in this furniture store in this small town. And he's been locked up ever since. Um, What was interesting to us about his case, and I'd never heard of it before, was nothing about the crime itself. We're not really interested in that, as in the dark. But the fact that Curtis had been tried six times by the same prosecutor, and that time after time Curtis would appeal his conviction the higher court would find prosecutorial misconduct. But then rather than Curtis being able to get out of prison, the prosecutor just essentially got like a clean slate, a do-over, he could try it again. So Curtis has been in this loop now and locked up since 1997. Um, And so for me, the story was interesting because it offered a way to look at two things. One is the power of prosecutors in the United States. I mean, when you think about the power someone has to keep being found to have engaged in misconduct, keep being able to try you for more than 20 years, that's significant. And then also the role of race in the criminal justice system and certainly throughout this story in particular. You said, like, um, that's not what we're interested in in the dark, like the actual crime. Right. I mean, my sense listening to the show was like the goal was really to, like, investigate the prosecution and by doing that you're going to investigate the crime in some way but why not investigate the crime what, what what's what's the theory yeah i mean i'm not opposed to people investigating crimes they're called law enforcement and they should do that but i'm also not opposed to reporters investigating crimes jerry mitchell an amazing reporter at the clarion ledger who's investigated a lot of old civil rights cases shows the value of doing that but for us as investigative reporters on our team We are interested in the powerful people in the story and whether or not they've done their jobs or whether they've abused their power. And so the fact that a crime has occurred is terrible, but that's not our main reason. That's not why we're interested in the story. And so, you know, in Curtis Flowers' case, 
you know, we're interested in the crime in the sense of what's the evidence that was presented against him at trial. You know, we found in our reporting that some of it was junk science, that some people had lied on the stand, you know, other issues with the with what happened at trial. But the question then always points to, okay, well, who's the person then who's asking to have this information admitted at trial? Who's the person who's arguing in front of a jury? And that is the district attorney in this case, Doug Evans. And so that is always our interest, like in both seasons of In the Dark. And really, like, I mean, that should be familiar to anybody who does investigative reporting. It's like you're always interested in what are the powerful people or institutions who might be abusing their power. I think part of the reason I was asking is because I feel like there's this sort of consistent thing with true crime podcasts in particular, which is now like reached the point of parody of like you're trying to solve whodunits and like, you know, exonerate wrongfully incarcerated people and in the dark feels at least to me like not necessarily a reaction to those but just trying to carve out a different lane yeah i'm glad you feel that way but i mean but does it feel that way to you like is that conscious oh yeah i mean we're we're investigative reporters so we would never even consider doing a story like a whodunit just like i mean never say never but really i mean that's just not something we're interested in so and sorry you're, you're saying that like casually but i actually don't totally understand why Oh, um, I mean, if you look at season one of In the Dark, for example, which to not get into the weeds with it, but is about law enforcement's failure for more than 20 years to solve a notorious child abduction. 27, right? Yeah. And so our um, interest there was, well, why didn't law enforcement solve it? So, but I guess for us, you know, we're reporting on the criminal justice system in both of these seasons, and that's really more how I see Mm -hmm. our work. And so... You know, I think for us, we are really looking more at systemic issues. And, you know, I and I fact, I think that, and we kind of make this point a little bit in season one, that in a way there's an argument to be made that sort of our collective obsession with cold cases and calling them cold cases or unsolved mysteries or whatever we want to call them has really blinded us to the fact that there is an entity whose job it is to solve crimes. Mm-hmm. And that's not like the supposed to be the like a crowdsourcing thing, that those people are law enforcement. They're detectives. That's their job. That's their training. And if the crime isn't solved, the first question we should be asking is, well, what's going on with the cops who are supposed to be solving it? Instead of, I think, always, often we jump to this idea of sort of a collaboration with law enforcement as reporters. Like, we're all now in this together and we're not going to re- ask these tough questions of law enforcement. Instead, we're just going to also try to help law enforcement solve it. And there's not, I'm not saying like one is, should never happen, but it's just like when we think about sort of the options of stories and how often we see one type of story versus another, like we saw that in the Jacob Wetterling case, which we did for season one of In the Dark. It's a totally legitimate and important question. If someone can figure out who did that crime back when it was unsolved, that would be incredibly important. But it also seemed like there should have been some reporting at some point in there before we came along 27 years later about why law enforcement hadn't solved it. So how does that affect like um, the narrative choices that you make, right? So if, if your lens is pointed at law enforcement rather than the crime itself, how does that affect how you tell a story like Curtis Lowers? Yeah, I mean, I think... In terms of structure, I mean, we were looking at, okay, what is the evidence that was presented against him at trial? And so we started there. And so we really went through piece by piece the evidence that was presented. And 
kept our focus pretty firmly there. And then that led to other questions about what this district attorney was doing in other cases, what he was doing in basically all of his cases as a district attorney since he won office in 1991. So, um, but yeah, I mean, for us, it's um, really not like, oh, we're investigating this case. Mm. In the same way that like, if you think about, you know, the story about Flint, Michigan and the water, it's not really a story about water. It's a story about powerful people not dealing with the fact that this water is contaminated and allowing it to be contaminated. But no one would ever say like, oh, that's a water story. Right. It's like sort of, but not at all, actually. And right. so I think in the same way with what we're doing, it's I would compare it to that. That's actually a really helpful comparison. Like it's not really a murder story, even though that's sort of at the center of it. Yeah, because I mean, there are plenty of stories that don't naturally contain a larger issue. I mean, there's plenty of murders that are unsolved that gets solved and there's not really a large need for an investigative reporter Mm -hmm. to be involved in that. But I think that what we see in cases that do end up getting the focus of investigative reporters are cases where there are things that are clearly wrong, you know, whether that is, you know, issues with juvenile confessions or junk science or racism or false confessions, whatever it is, um, the use of jailhouse informants. I mean, these repeat things that we see that have, through reporting now come to be known as things that are problems. Mm-hmm. And I think that those things are more of interest to me and to other investigative reporters. Um, so speaking of your interest, like season one comes out, it's got a huge audience. You guys decide like we ought to keep doing this, I assume, or maybe the plan was always to do that. How do you pick this story? Like how does that process work? It took several months and, you know, as a podcast after season one of In the Dark, I mean, we see ourselves as doing an investigative journalism podcast, not doing like at all a true crime podcast or a podcast about the criminal justice system. So really, like the story selection is pretty wide open for what we could choose. And we had a bunch of ideas of our own. And then we had sev- like many tips. Um, and we had this one email that was one of the shortest emails or tips that we got. It was from a woman who lived in that part of Mississippi. And she just wrote, There's a man here named Curtis Flowers who's been tried six times for the same crime. Um, The evidence is iffy, but the man didn't stand a chance. That's pretty much the entirety (laughs) of her email. And, you know, a lot of other people had written in attaching documents and long things. And that's great. But this was really simple. And like a lot of tips you get as a reporter where you're like, well, that's very interesting. But I doubt that that is exactly what happened. Like maybe they were not all trials for the same crime or something is, you know, not that this woman is intentionally misleading me, right, but, but there's just, just like, something off. It's just like the most like salacious version of it kind of. Right. Yeah. It's like, and no, it turned out to be true. And then right away it was of interest to us um, for the reasons we talked about. And, but, you know, we had a couple of the other story ideas that we were looking into. And so the way we did it was we reported out um, a couple of stories for a few months and then three stories actually. And then we narrowed it down to this one, which, you know, for us, you know, once we decide to select a story, I mean, you can see that in season two. I mean, we moved there. It's at this point nearly two years, I guess, a year and a half at least of reporting, but a year living there, a team of five people full time plus other people. So it's like a big commitment to pick a story. So we want to make sure we want to do enough initial reporting that we're sure that we have the right story. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we did right away was try to figure out, OK, is there anything that would kill this story? that would make us not care about it. And what are those things? And let's deal with them up front. So the biggest one was, 
is Curtis definitely guilty? Like, is there some piece of evidence that you really cannot? I mean, maybe he's not guilty, but come on, you know. And so we looked at everything with the least generous eye toward mm-hmm. Curtis. And of course, there isn't any evidence like that in the case, but we didn't know that at the time. When you're in that process and you're like reporting out a di- couple different stories, do you have a favorite? Do you have oh, like yes. one you're rooting for? Yes, absolutely. Was this your one? Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, to the point where um, I can't remember how we all had our little assignments um, because we assigned each other. There's there was three of us on the team at the time and we each had a different story. But I know, speaking for myself and I'm sure for other people on the team, I was always secretly researching this story, even when I was supposed to be looking at the others, <laughs> because it was just... I mean, the more I found out about it, you know, some stories you do some research on and there are moments where you become less interested in them and then you sort of recover from that. You're like, well, no, that's actually more interesting maybe that way. This story was always became more and more interesting and was really hard to not think about. Hey, I'm going to put things on hold with Madeline for just a second and uh, tell you a little bit about the sponsors making today's show possible. First up, our uh, new friends, but our increasingly close friends, Skagen. Thanks, Skagen, for sponsoring the episode. There's a story behind Skagen's Danish-inspired watches and jewelry. Skagen is inspired by the people who have become known as the happiest people on Earth. That's right, the Danish. When you take a closer look, it's easy to see why. The Danish culture focuses on what's meaningful, being part of a community, making time for relationships, living in the moment. How about that? Skagen's minimalist design reflects that less is more lifestyle. They've got uh, men's and women's watches, jewelry, even smart watches in a variety of styles. Those styles uh, are not doofusy is the way I would describe them. I, I don't have uh, fantastic adjectives, but uh, you don't look like a like a uh, doofus when you wear these smart watches from Skagen. They're stylish. They look like real watches, not uh, dumb computers on your wrist. I have one of these watches. I've been wearing it around, getting all kinds of compliments. Skagen products look right uh, any time of day, anywhere in the world, now or 10 years from now, because simplicity isn't just beautiful, it's versatile. So uh, here's what you should do. Visit skagen.com. You'll get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for emails. That's skagen.com, S-K-A-G-E-N.com. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show from a new friend, Skagen, to an old friend, Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more, Squarespace is the tool for you with beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks. You can easily make a beautiful website yourself if you have some project that has been sitting uh, in the back of your mind, something you have wanted to do, something you have uh, dreamed of putting out in the world, but uh, have been incapable of doing so, I recommend Squarespace. Everything just works. You don't need to know a lick of code. It's all optimized for mobile right out of the box. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Buying domains is simple. You'll get the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. They empower millions of people. You should be uh, the next one. Head to squarespace.com slash longform for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform. You're going to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Again, that's squarespace.com. Offer code is longform. Thanks, Squarespace. Thanks, Scoggin. Let's get back to the show. 
Is that like the, uh, I mean, aside from it can't be killed once I pick up my life and move to Mississippi, is like the story that you can't stop thinking about, is that like as good a sign as any that that's the one to pursue? Maybe, except that you could find yourself distracted by some interesting detail. I mean, because the other thing to us is like, is this story important? And so I think that was also what was attracting us to it. I mean, for me, it was the fact that with any story that I want to do, it's needs to have really high stakes for the people that are at the center of the story, which the story obviously does. Curtis is on death row. Um, there's four people who were murdered. And there's a prosecutor who's basically spent his, most of his career trying this case. So those are very high stakes for all of those people involved. Beyond that, though, that is definitely not enough for us as a story. We want a story that also has higher stakes. So in this case, jury selection, race in the criminal justice system, and really all of that just ties back to the power of the prosecutor. So it's it's like finding those two things in combination. And then with our team, you know, because we added two more people um, going into season two. So we really want to pick a story that we think merits that amount of reporting. Because five people full time for a year, year and a half, that's a lot. And so, you know, there are stories that are really great and worth doing. But they just we can look at them and know that that story would take a month to report. Yeah. Or six I mean, months. I mean, I can tell you, like listening to it, it's just the resources behind it and the time mm-hmm. feel immense. Yeah. I don't know of outside of polit- political reporting in the U.S. I don't know of other teams. How did you get this job? It's, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I guess I would by doing other investigative reporting that panned out, I guess mm-hmm. is the shortest answer. And by being fortunate enough to work in a place that recognized that and valued it and decided in a time when a lot of other companies are backing off of investigative reporting or limiting it to politics or, you know, whatever they're doing or just cutting back on any kind of long form reporting, where I work American Public Media in 2015 created a national investigative reporting team which is how In the Dark then I pitched In the Dark as part of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that it makes sense. I mean, it's not cheap, but listeners, I mean, like when you think about like why people care about journalism, you know, there's really a handful of reasons, but probably in the top, everyone's top five is because it tells you things that powerful people are doing, that powerful people don't want you to know about. And therefore, like in a democracy, I need to know this so I can operate with any level of intelligence. And so... On the one hand, it's not surprising to me that a newsroom would invest like this. On the other hand, it is when we look at the state of the industry. What was the budget for season two? I don't know the answer to that, actually. Really? No. You have like a ballpark? No, I don't. I don't even have a guess as to what the budget was. Um, I mean, we have a staff of five people full time. Sounds super luxurious. I mean, but when we're there, I mean. Yeah, Mississippi's pretty cheap. Yeah, the costs of living there were, were low. And, you know, we didn't go into it thinking, oh, we're going to be reporting this story for a year in Mississippi. We actually thought maybe it would be slightly less than that. And so um, we just kept extending it as we kept finding more things out. And I think that's like another really positive thing about the team I work in, which is like when you find more things out, the reaction isn't, well, that's inconvenient Mm -hmm. because of the deadline. It's like, what? What did you find out? How important is that? Okay, what's the plan now? So the plan now is, well, obviously... We're going to stop pursuing that one thing, which is nothing. It's like a rabbit hole. It goes nowhere. And the other thing, though, now is the thing we need to 
probably spend three months on. Like now we need a reporting plan for that. And so, yeah, I mean, I do feel like I'm very fortunate to work on this, but I also think it hopefully shows that this type of reporting, like if you put the resources into it and you have like the right sort of editorial vision about which stories to choose, does make sense to do. I mean, the story is both important as a story, but also incredibly illuminating about larger things that are happening in our country. Mm. And so I would hope that other news organizations wouldn't look at it and say, well, I don't know, that seems so over the top. I'm not going to do it. Right. It's like it's risky, but you can take down the risk quite a bit if you do the work up front. Yeah. And, you know, it comes down to what you want to support. Like what what do you want to prioritize? Um, you know, even if it's not on this level of, well, am I going to have a five-person team or not? But in a lot of newsrooms, it's really more like, and I've worked in these newsrooms, am I going to give one reporter half a day on Friday to pursue something that seems like it might be investigative and go somewhere? Or am I going to require that reporter to never leave, you know, whatever their beat is or their GA assignments? Right, you know? turn out seven stories a day. Right. Yeah. Did you know before you went down there that you were never going to get to Dr. Curtis? No, but I knew that it was unlikely. Yeah, it's an interesting feature of this story that with everyone we've talked to, I mean, at this point, I mean, we've talked to Curtis's, people played basketball with him in middle school. We've talked to people who were dating him in high school. You know, we talked to people in all kinds of ways in the story, but he's one of the few we haven't. So I still hope that will change. But the reason is because the prison, well, there are two reasons. One is that the prison won't let me visit him or talk to him on the phone. That's reason number one. Reason number two is that his lawyers, Curtis's defense attorneys, won't let him write to me. So this combination has created this interesting scenario where the person who is on death row, who I know, I think I know a lot about at this point, I've never had any contact with, hmm. you know, in terms, I mean, I've written him letters, but I've never heard back from him. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. It is. I mean, you know, it's like, um, that would be, I would assume like pretty high on the checklist as you're going down, like, all right, is this the one it's like, we're going to, all right, we're going to go spend a year. We're going to invest so much money. I don't even know how much it is. Five of us are going to be there. We're going to pour this whole thing out. We're going to do, you know, 11 episodes and I mean, close to what, 11 hours on this case and the chances of us talking to the main character or one of the two main characters are incredibly low. Yeah. Did that feel like daunting or dicey to you or you were just like, there's a way to make this all work without him? I guess to me it was, it didn't make sense to me to not do this story because we couldn't talk to Curtis that... Like, in a way, one of the reasons why Curtis is in the situation that he's in and no one knows about his case is for this very reason and others. You know, it's like he's pretty cut off from the outside world. Like, he can't get visits from reporters. He can't talk to reporters on the phone. He can't write letters to reporters. So here's this guy who could be executed by the state without almost anyone outside of Mississippi knowing who he is. And so to me, like the fact that we couldn't talk to him, if we were to walk away from it for that reason would seem just terrible to me. I mean, but it was, you know, there were things that at a practical level were a challenge. I mean, we did, you know, talk to, spend a lot of time talking to his family mm -hmm. who would go and visit him every two weeks, which is the most you can go visit someone at Parchman Prison where he is. And so we talked to people all the time who are in communication with him. So it's not like we don't know what's going on with him, right. but we don't, you know, 
know that directly from him. But, you know, one of the advantages, if there is an advantage of not talking to him, and I'm not saying this because I was trying to think optimistically and come up with the advantage to a bad situation, but I do think this is true, is that when he's absent from the story, it does remove this kind of pointless speculation about whether or not he sounds guilty. Mm. I would always prefer to talk to him, but I'm recognizing the benefit of avoiding something like sounds innocent, sounds guilty, you know, like the listener getting really caught up in that kind of dynamic. Like, how do we feel about him? Because ultimately, it doesn't matter how we feel about Curtis. What matters is what's the evidence against him? Does the evidence hold up? I mean, is there evidence that he did it or not? And, you know, that would be the only benefit I could Mm -hmm. see of not having talked to him. But I would never want to make that trade up. I mean, I would I still hope to be able to talk to him. I mean, it's I've never been in a situation like this where I have not talked to someone who's at the center of my story that I've done for this long. Right. Like the center of your life for a couple of years. It's like, uh, I mean, I know that he is very much alive, but it's almost like he's like, like a like a ghost sort of. Yeah. I mean, he's always talking to his family. Yeah. You know, people in Parchman Prison don't usually get very many visitors, if any. But, you know, his parents are some of the few that were in the waiting room waiting to see him every two weeks. I mean, just very unusual. And so because of that, you know, people are always talking about what's going on with Curtis. You know, what did Curtis have for breakfast? I told Curtis not to have that for lunch if he had it for breakfast. You know, or like he's not feeling well. He has a cold. You know, so in the one hand, I feel like I know a lot about his sort of day-to-day. But that's very different. I mean of course, than talking to him directly. And so the part of this that's missing that we only can sort of hint at in the podcast based on people who have talked to him and know him is really what this is like for him. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is someone who has been locked up in jail or prison since 1997. He went in in his mid-20s. He's always said he was innocent. He's been sentenced to death four times, had two mistrials, He's living in one of the most notorious prisons in the country. His case is about to be heard by the highest court in the United States. So, yeah, I mean, I really wonder what this is like. I know that he's very religious. And so everyone I've talked to who knows him says that he's confident or believes that justice will be done, whatever that ends up meaning, um, whether that means in the criminal justice system or in a religious context. But still, it's hard to imagine what that would be like to regardless of whether you did it or not to be living that way for so long do you know if you listen to the show he can't listen to it okay so he can't listen to podcasts in prison but we did send him transcripts so he did get the transcripts read it yeah that also must be a very strange experience for him like yeah i mean i talked to i mean his parents told me that he's gotten you know hundreds and hundreds probably more than hundreds at this point of letters and, you know, enjoys hearing from people. I mean, this is all of a sudden a, a big new thing. Not only that people know about his case, but there are these new developments, right. our findings in the case. And so it's all of a sudden like this rush of activity. Mm-hmm. Um, Can I talk to you a little bit about the, not even exactly the reporting process, but more just the process of moving to Mississippi and trying to get comfortable there and people comfortable with you and... Mm-hmm how you do that and, and what the uh, what the uncomfortable parts of that was. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think we could have done this story without moving there. 
partly because the story is complicated. And there's tons of people to talk to, but also because there's all of this sort of context that I think is important to spend enough time living there that you feel like you understand the racial dynamics of the town, for example. But then I think a lot of the success that I had in people talking to me, and particularly in certain cases, was because although I wasn't from that town, if you go to a town of 4,000 people and you're there for a couple of days, people are like, who's that person that's in our town? That's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. And if you're there for like a week, people are now really like, what is going on? You know? And if a week becomes two weeks, three weeks, a month, now this is crazy. <laughs> and so, I mean, us being in the town was not a secret in any way. You know, we're here, we're reporters, we're radio reporters, we're reporting on Curtis's case and the criminal justice system. And so it helped us in, in some ways getting people comfortable with us, where although we technically, yes, we were strangers, but we were also the people that they saw all the time, you know, the people at like the football game, we were invited to church, so we were at church all the time. People saw us talking to their neighbors or their grandmother or, you know, their uncle, their teacher. I mean, were you off the clock ever? Someone asked me that the other day and I was thinking about it. I think the answer to that is no, just because, I mean, it's like if we had reported this story in Chicago or something, well, then we could have met people in Chicago who weren't in any way related to the story, legitimately not related to it. And we could have had like, work life and non-work life right. but in this story like in a town of four thousand people every there is no such person right so you definitely always felt I mean, to greater and lesser degrees but yeah i mean i always felt like i was reporting can i see a little bit about those interviews the kind of like more uncomfortable ones mm-hmm. there's an incredible conversation the da's name is doug evans and there's an incredible scene he's he's this kind of sort of like almost like Oz figure for like the first several episodes of the show and you don't hear from him and he like he comes up again and again and again and you're trying to like sort of circling around how much effort he has put into trying this case over and over again and the lengths that he has gone the jurors that he has dismissed the evidence he has suppressed all these things and then finally you end up in his office and you have what feels like a pretty impromptu and informal conversation uh, with him. We don't do this very often, but actually I feel like uh, it would be helpful if we just listened to it for a second. Can we do that? Mm -hmm. The walls were so thin that we could hear Doug Evans in a back room somewhere down the hallway. And we could hear the hum of his assistant prosecutors and investigators answering the phone, talking about cases. And then, after about an hour or so of waiting, a man walked up the hallway He had white hair that was parted on one side, and he was wearing khaki pants and a blue button-down shirt that had the district attorney's insignia on it. He stopped when he got to the entrance to the lobby and leaned one arm against the wall. It was Doug Evans. Hi, Mr. Evans. Can I hit you? Hi, I'm Madeline. This is Parker. Um, We're with Public Radio. Nice to meet you. Um, We were stopping by because we've been reporting on the case of Curtis Flowers, and we wanted to talk to you about the case. I can't talk to anybody about the case. It's still pending. Oh, so you can't talk because it's pending? When it's finally over, then can. But as long as it's pending, I can't go into any facts about the case. It's been pending for so long. Yep. Doug Evans stayed in the entrance to the lobby. He didn't invite us back to his office, but he didn't walk away either. So I've been reporting on the case for about a year. And what about, um, I've talked to a lot of people. I've talked to- Help me understand your approach like before that interview and then 
How would you like describe yourself in that moment? Yeah. So before that interview, I mean, I tried to arrange a formal interview with him and he just hadn't responded. So this was sort of a last ditch effort. But that guy's got to know that you guys are there and pushing and like. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what point, though, I mean, because we started out talking to people who were witnesses in the case and Curtis's family, all of whom are black and the town and the area so racially divided that I actually don't think a lot of if any white people in town knew we were there for perhaps even most of the summer. But then after that, yeah, I mean, at a certain point, especially when we're going around, you know, reporter Parker is scanning all the court records at all the courthouses. That is a thing that people were talking about. But so my process was, um, you know, I sort of prepare for lots of different scenarios. I prepare for the ideal scenario, which is we sit down and we talk until I don't have any more questions. And so that's a very long list of things I want to find out. I have had that happen before, so I want to be prepared for that. And then you sort of prepare lesser versions of that, you know, like if I can only ask him three things or if I can only talk to him for 25 minutes or something. Right. And how different is that preparation for a podcast than it was when you were writing? Not at all. Really? The same. Yeah. I mean, it's just basic journalism. So it's like, and then you, what the other key thing is like, you want to figure out why, how am I going to get this person to talk to me? And not in a manipulative way, but just in a like, how am I going to convince them that I am actually here to listen to them and that I am going to not be a complete jerk to them while we have this conversation, like that we can actually talk. So how do you do that? I think a couple ways, but I think that a lot of times I benefit from being different than what people expect of a reporter in a situation like that. Because the sort of parody of an investigative reporter is like, this like, you know, dude who's like pounding on the door, who's got like, he's not going to take no for an answer, but he's really there so that he can capture the sound of the door slamming. And the louder you slam it, like the more pleased he'll be when he returns to his newsroom. And that like the questions are really more of an interrogation. And I don't even know how often that happens anymore, but certainly it happens. But it's always portrayed on television. So I think that people have this idea about that's how it might go down. And so then I think where I benefit from that is that I'm so not like that, that people tend to not react like this is that big of a deal to keep talking to me or not. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, and then I think what happened in that interview was I felt very prepared for it. So there were certain things that I knew while the interview was happening, especially thinking about it now, that if I hadn't prepared as much, I would have made worse decisions about what to focus on or you know, things like that. I mean, when the interview was ending, sadly, because I think he would have talked to us for much longer, except that there was a man who worked in his office who very legitimately needed to have a form signed. Mm. And so he came up behind. Doug oh, Evans. really? Yes. I totally heard that as like some bullshit. Like he had pressed the like, come get me out of this situation. Button. I don't think so. I mean, it did end up being the like an opportunity for Doug Evans to stop talking to me, but yeah. I didn't get the feeling like that it was orchestrated. But there was this moment where I like, realized that I would have probably one more question and I had to like make that decision in like five seconds what that question would be. And so I ended up telling him about the fact that his star witness had reversed himself. But I was definitely like cycling through, like, is it time for that question? This whole thing is 11 minutes, but it seems longer and shorter in some ways when it's happening. Um, yeah. I mean, on some level, when you're in that moment, are you sort of like, I can't believe this is happening right now? 
I just spent a year reporting on this guy and yeah. now I finally got my one question. I think that when um, we showed up at the office and we weren't immediately told to leave. And I think at that moment, me and Parker, who's the reporter who was with me, the other reporter, thought this guy's going to talk to us. I mean, I also have a policy in my own brain of always going into an interview thinking this person's going to talk to me. Mm. So, Just to like psych yourself up? Yes. So I guess I was prepared. I was more prepared for that. And especially when we were told just, you know, he's meeting with a victim, but if you hang out here, you know, he'll be done in a little while. I I think we hung out for like an hour. Mm -hmm. And the more time we spent, the more likely I was like, well, he's going to come and talk to us. And that's the advantage too of being in person where it's much easier to convince somebody to keep talking to you than I think, of course, than it is on the phone. So although one of the first things he said when he came out was, I'm not going to talk to you. Like, we're already here. Mm-hmm. Let's just talk about it anyways, <laughs> you know. But is it is the nature of that conversation, is the energy of it different because there's microphones there? Like, would you have had that conversation differently if you were just holding a notepad or like a little like a tape recorder? No. I When I first started in radio, because I did not originally start in radio, I definitely thought that having a microphone there you know, was completely changing the dynamic of everything that was taking place. And, you know, wouldn't it be better if I could just have a notebook or my record on my phone? And, you know, a bunch of like really quite skilled radio reporters and producers would tell me, no, 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 you're just anxious about the microphone. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. They're not in the room. They don't know. This person's anxious. And that's what's happening. After a while, I realized that I was completely wrong, and that was entirely what was going on, that I actually don't think the microphone is that bad, especially if you how you deal with it. So we always go in recording, and we're upfront about the fact we're recording, but we don't have a moment, similar to how like a reporter doesn't want to have a moment where they sort of dramatically take out their notebook, unless they want that for some weird reason, but like normally... Same guy, same guy who wants it is the guy who wants the door slam. Right. Or like there could be a strategic reason for doing that in an interview, but most of the time it's going to freak people out. Yeah. Like, oh, now it's being written down. Now it's, I better be careful or something, you know, or like, and by careful, I mean not careful, but just not talking. So I think that there's a way, like once you record enough that it just seems natural, it seems like the same thing as carrying around a notebook. And actually in some ways it's more liberating because like there's a microphone, which is actually easier maybe to forget about in some ways than a notebook because you don't even know what I'm thinking is the most interesting thing you're saying, which is not the case when I was a print reporter, if I was taking notes, because there's no avoiding the fact, especially if you weren't recording it. When you see me writing, it's because you said something that I care about. And, you know, you can game that or whatever. But generally speaking, that's what's going on. Whereas with audio, you're just like continuing to have this conversation. And so I think it's more just getting comfortable with it. And people generally want to talk. I mean, people, I think mostly no one listens to them, just in general, or really listens to them. And there aren't really very many people coming up to any of us and being like, hey, like, tell me what's going on in your life. You know, like, very few people. So when someone does that and they actually seem interested, you can understand why people would talk regardless of whether there's a microphone or not. And yeah, it was very rare in this project that anybody asked us to not record. I mean, like a handful of times, maybe. Do you ever get nervous in those interviews? No. 
it may sound weird, but no, no, I'm more like so focused on what needs to happen that I don't really have like mental space <laughs> to have a feeling about it. You know, yeah. it's almost like I don't even think really very much about what the person is saying other than the significance of it to get to the next thing, especially when the time is limited. But yeah, I mean, to me, it's just like doing anything else. Like at this point, I feel like I've knocked on so many doors that I've gotten over my weird fear of knocking people's doors, you know, like certainly by the end of season two or well before the end of it. Um, And so most of journalism I think is like that. It's like you have something that you really don't want to do but then you just keep doing it and then it gets less weird. There are times that not really in this reporting, but there I think they come up more in kind of breaking news that I never got used to, you know, like when you're doing general assignment reporting and you're asked to call the family member of someone who died. You know, there's certain types of reporting that you cannot actually I don't think get acclimated to. But in my work now, um yeah, I don't feel anxious before an interview but I also think that I just tend to not do interviews until I feel like I'm prepared for them so there are people that I feel like oh this is going to be complicated or this can be a lot they never talked before or if they have they've always engaged in a really skillful way of not answering those questions but then I try to prepare myself to the point where I no longer feel that way and so and also on our team we do like a fair amount of role playing actually in season two, probably because we were just driving everywhere. I mean, we were driving for hours. I mean, spent so much time in the car. So, and I think once you do that as well. So you'd really like play out these yeah. scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. And that was helpful? Oh, yeah. Because like if you have a list of questions and you're reviewing a list of questions, well, no interview is like, here's the question, here's the answer, here's the question, here's... So you're not really preparing. I mean, you're preparing for the interview in a way, but you're not actually preparing for what's going to happen in the interview, which is fine if, you know, you're in like a medium to low stakes thing or whatever. But if you really feel like you have one chance with someone that and you know it's going to be a little challenging, I find it helpful. Hmm. It's like, you know, sometimes there's really specific things that we can imagine would happen in an interview, like... Like someone might say, well, have you talked to this person? And for journalism reasons, we're not going to answer that question. Well, what do we say if that person asks mm-hmm. it? So there's like things that we we will actually role play like that. And then I think once you do that, that also builds your confidence even more because now you're like got your questions and you basically already sort of are in that mind space then when you go into it. Mm-hmm. So it's sometimes we do that and then we talk to the person and there's w- at least one person in season two who we did a ton of preparation for who we knocked on their door and they were just like, yeah, come on in. What do you want to know? <laughs> but still, it's still worth it. Right, you want to plan for the other thing. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason I'm asking about the Evans thing so much, there's a couple of moments in the show and it's usually when it feels like you're having a, a sort of one-shot conversation. There's also a, a, an amazing scene in the show where you're talking to um, basically the prosecution star witness who's calling from like a contraband cell phone under his blankets in prison. And that is the same energy to it, you know, like it just feels like as a listener, you're sort of, you're invested in the story, but also invested in the, you and the team. Mm-hmm. And it feels like you like, you got something and you guys document your reporting process so thoroughly that like you understand all the work that went into getting to that phone call in jail or getting into Doug Evans' office and being as prepared as you were. And those moments in the show are 
riveting. Like you're on the edge of your seat. And I wonder whether you want In the Dark to be entertaining. Hmm. I want people to want to listen to it. But that's true for a lot of things that aren't really necessarily entertaining. I mean, if I think about dark works of literature, would I say they were entertaining to read? Maybe, but there might be a better word for it. Gripping, engaging, important to read or something, you know, some other word. And so so I think with reporting, with any kind of investigative reporting, you're not really there to tell a good story. Because if you were primarily there for that reason, you could take different elements of the same story and spend a whole lot more time on them. You know, I mean, you could imagine a different version of this story that's not investigative, that's very much focused on this furniture store and, the, you know, the sort of the facts of the crime or whatever else. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of points in the show where you go really far down a line that isn't necessarily the most, like, engrossing tape but uh-huh. you kind of have to understand how it works. Like there's a section early on where you just like explain how the barrel of a gun works, which actually is pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess for us, it's like we're always thinking about not so much first the narrative, but first, what did we find out and what's important? And then how can we construct a story that's going to take people along on that, where they're going to care about it and then be able to follow it. And so that's, I mean, that's a challenge like in a any kind of serialized podcast or film where you know you have this one narrative arc from start to finish of the season but you also have all these individual episodes with narrative arcs and because you know we're not novelists we don't get to change the facts so sometimes there are these facts that you really do not like because they're so confusing and you really wish they were not that way you know there's certain aspects of the ballistics in this case that really were difficult to explain that if it were only slightly different would not be you know but you don't get to choose and so Yeah, and we spend a lot of time, I mean, in our process of like storyboarding and edits and group edits and sound edits, we bring in people who haven't, don't know what we're doing, who work in other parts of the company, they don't know the story at all, and have them listen. And what we're asking them to listen for mostly is, you know, what is this episode about? So that's clarity. Also confusion. Um, Like, what questions do you have? Hopefully they're nothing at the core, like how does a gun work again? Right. You know, which or is... like, who, who's on trial? Yeah. Right, yeah, or something, yeah, like, which one is the prosecutor and which one is the defense attorney? Or even something less than that, like, are the things that we think are funny, are those really funny? Or things that we think are sad, are they really sad to people, um, especially when we spent this, this much time in it? But, yeah, we go through many, many, many changes, as everyone does when they write, to get to something that we hope is gripping enough that people will stick with it. And I also think that, especially now with In the Dark, our listeners get what we're doing. And so they know that we're going to engage in this exhaustive reporting that's going to lead somewhere. So, like, we're not going down things that have a question mark still at the end of them, really we're finding things out. And mm-hmm. so I think that helps a lot when people have that expectation. They're willing to go down that with you because they know that you're not you're not engaged in a lot of false promises right. as like a narrative trick. Right, that makes sense to me. But then there's also this choice. You guys do show your work yes. in a way that a lot of people don't. How do you think about that in relation to making something that is gripping? So I, yeah. I like the idea of gripping instead of entertaining. Uh-huh. But what I mean is like, 
how do you balance the degree to which you show your work with the urge to make sure that people keep listening? Yeah, so we show the work often as a way to get people to keep listening. Yeah. So because there's something inherently interesting about the sort of quest to figure something out, and especially once the listener has invested in it. So like, I guess I always think about it compared to a standard news story, which doesn't have a lot of time, which would go something like, you know, a such and such investigation, a year-long such and such investigation, reviewed X number of records and found blah, blah, blah. That's a sentence that we read all the time. It's fine. But what we're doing that's different, and I think like documentary film often does this, lots of long-form reporting of any kind does differently, is that before we get to that line, and we never actually give you that terribly written line, <laughs> but before we even get to that idea, we make you care about what the answer might be. So we spend a lot of time first like talking about why it's important. So like with jury selection, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, what is the race of the jurors in Curtis's trials, all white or nearly white? Why is that a problem? Beyond the obvious, you know, it's also against the Constitution to strike people because of their race. So we go through all of that, and to people want to then know. So it's not like us saying, oh, we went and did this thing that you should care about. It's like, oh, yeah, that is now my next logical question, too. Does this happen in all the trials in Doug Evans' district? Says the listener, hopefully. And so then it's like, well, guess what? We're going to find out. And so then sometimes in a podcast that has very often few opportunities for levity, this is one of them where, you know, Parker is scanning these documents and these eight different courthouses and she's encountering these different personalities of the different clerks who work there and her life is kind of miserable and it keeps happening. It's like months and months of only scanning documents. And so the way that, and then this is more of the producers who work on the show, I mean, Samara in, in particular, who have, you know, created that scene in that particular way. But anyways, so we're like, oh man, it's so terrible to have to do this. Poor Parker. But then we also really want to know what the answer is going to be. And then we meet Will, and Will is our data reporter, and Will is like going to like crunch the numbers and figure it out. Then he tells us, and then at that point when we learn that, oh, this DA's office has struck black people from juries at nearly four and a half times the rate of white people since 1992 in all the trials we could look at, oh, that is a problem. Versus the flip of it, which would be, you know, just telling you right off the top, we did all this stuff. It took a long time. This is what we found out. This is why it matters. Mm -hmm. So it's like changing the order of that. But a benefit of it as well, I think, of showing our work has been that I think it has helped people who aren't journalists have a better sense of what journalists do. Is that part of your mission? No, but I think it's a helpful thing to also do. I mean, <laughs> It's like a nice ancillary benefit. Yeah. I mean, because... I think that if you can show people what what you're actually doing, then people can say, oh, I can see why this is something I might want to support, or I can see why this is a year-long investigation. And when we think about the importance of journalism, that then stands out a little bit more, a year-long investigation, mm -hmm. like the cost of that, the time, the resources to find out a fact. That's important. And I think to just sit in that time for longer is revelatory for some people. So, I mean, basically what I hear you saying is like the two things feed each other. Like if you play it right, showing your work creates tension and questions mm -hmm. that need to be answered, which in itself is gripping, which gets people to tap on the next episode. Yeah. 
and then makes people know more about reporting. I mean, there's tons of time. Most of the time we don't do that because otherwise it would be this like boring podcast about like the act of journalism or something where we see too much behind the scenes and it starts to drag as a narrative. It's like, okay, we get it. You knocked on their door 12 times. Right. I mean, I think maybe to be slightly more direct about Mm -hmm. what I'm asking about, there, there is this tension currently in either like the podcast industry itself or like writing about podcasts that podcast series and particularly like true crime stuff is sort of moving too hard in the entertainment category and too far away from sort of like what we would understand as typical journalism. And it seems to me like in the dark is this really interesting example of a show that is like adhering as strongly as it possibly can to these like journalistic values and also is gripping and thinking about how to get people to keep listening. And, you know, like your narration, I think, is like less emotional maybe Mm -hmm. than a lot of like podcast narration. Does that sound fair? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. Yeah, I mean, we're not, it's always this tension. We're not... Do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, about? yeah, I do. like it's like yeah. like uh, you're trying to make something that's like good that people want to keep listening to. Yeah, that also is not uh, salacious. Yes, yeah, and and we definitely think a lot about that. I mean, we spend so much time like reining things back. I mean, that are already restrained. So restrained is a better description for your narration than unemotional, but, but it, it is like it's restrained. But yeah, and like you said, it's not really a new concept. It's just like journalism. It's just like, that's all we're doing is just journalism. But there's just, yeah, there's a wide range of journalism in any platform. And so we're doing kind of more, I think, traditional exhaustive investigative reporting, but we're doing it in this platform that's still somewhat new. And so a lot of things haven't really been settled yet. Well, that's, I mean, not to like uh, opine, but that's my theory about it is that the medium is new enough that conventions in other mediums when applied to this one it's so new that people haven't quite processed it yet mm-hmm. like the magazine article as like a uh, atomic unit is like a thing that's pretty defined at this point right. and we've talked about it exhaustively on this show and people make all kinds of choices that are both intended to be gripping or entertaining Mm -hmm. while also like journalistically sound people want to folks to like read stories to the end leads are dramatic there's cliffhangers like that's all sort of like accepted as part of the form Mm -hmm. and it feels to me like part of what people are responding to with podcasting is that just hasn't been like defined quite yet and and, like what i'm thinking about is like there's like a snl sketch this weekend Mm mm-hmm called the potties which is like actually pretty funny but like you were definitely in that sketch it appears that way it does appear that way yes uh what was the category that you were like white women in places like places they shouldn't go or like uncomfortable yeah like it's getting spoofed Mm -hmm. i think it's kind of like if we looked at all television through the lens of the like most sensational terrible crime show you know and then we when 
HBO came out with some documentary about the public defender system, we sort of said it must be similar to that. Like they're all doing sort of the same thing. We would never do that because television is this like established medium that's got all this stuff. And we understand that like not everything in this is all related to each other. You know, there's like the Today Show and then there's the Lifetime channel and then there's what CNN or whatever. These are not all the same or they're not all like in a dialogue directly with each other. But um, it's just not the case yet with podcasts. So, you know, I think what we are seeing now is more and more journalism based podcasts, like with Caliphate, for example, like, um, you know, we're seeing news organizations and experienced reporters engage in making podcasts. But, you know, for us, we definitely see what we're doing as reporting on the criminal justice system. And you can do that in a way. I mean, the drama, we don't have to create the drama in that story. And the drama is in the story itself. Here's a guy who's on death row. Here's a man named Doug Evans who wants him killed. How much does he want him killed? He's tried him six times. How has he been able to do that? Well, by violating the U.S. Constitution. That's one of the reasons. I mean, we didn't make any of that up. That just plainly stated it's not sensational. It's just true. So I don't really feel like we need to create drama. Like if we've picked the right story, the stakes should be there and we shouldn't need to hype it. Also for us, you know, the advantages, one thing that's positive about reporting on the criminal justice system is people are interested in crime in a way that, you know, sometimes environmental reporters struggle to get people interested in the environment because a lot of people don't have that intrinsic interest. Lots of people have that baseline interest in crime. And so if you're reporting on the criminal justice system, that's definitely valuable. And so, um, you know, people can come to our podcast because they want like a crime story. Mm -hmm. But then when they realize that it's also something else and then they stick around, like that's a really good outcome for us. What are the other good outcomes for you, for you and for your team? Like Curtis Flowers is going to go to the Supreme Court in February. When you do a story like this, what else are you hoping will happen as a result? Well... I'm not even saying necessarily that's what you were hoping for, but you spent a year of your life doing this. Mm -hmm. It's a huge investment. What do you want to get out of it? On the most basic level, I want people to know about what happened and I want to figure out what actually did happen. So, you know, I can't control what people will do in response to that. You know, there have been plenty of stories I've reported where I felt like, really? Nothing? You know, nobody cares. And then others where you're like, really? This is the one that's going to lead to all these changes? So I don't really try to guess which this one is going to be because it's in a lot of ways it's out of your control. So all I really want is for us to be able to find things out that are important and get those to the public. And I think in this case, that's what happened. I mean, the fact that this district attorney is engaging in his office or engaging in a pattern of racial discrimination and jury selection is really important. And it's one thing to say that anecdotally, like Curtis Flowers was tried by an all-white jury or a nearly all-white jury. I bet that prosecutor does that a lot. And it's a very different thing to say, no, yeah, I know he does. And I know actually the data. I can give you the number. And so for us, like regardless of what ends up happening with that, that was important. But also when you think about Curtis's case, I mean, there are specific things that we found out in the course of our reporting that could change his case. I don't know if they will at this point, but I mean, certainly 
key witness who's reversed himself, other witnesses who've said contradictory things to what they testified to under oath. There's some junk science that we expose. So, I mean, I hope that all of that makes its way. I know it is making its way into like sort of the public debate and the court debate about the case. Um, but I don't, I don't go in with high expectations of an outcome. And I also think that if it were as simple as, oh, if you expose an injustice, then like the wrong is righted, then a lot of these stories wouldn't exist in the first place. You know, but a lot of times these stories, certainly the case in Curtis's story, where things go wrong, people realize them, but they're never really addressed. And so they just keep happening. And so I know as a reporter, often I'm just like the latest person to this terrible party where I'm like, yes, this is an injustice that's happened. But I do think that sometimes when you can really focus people's attention on a particular type of injustice, race and jury selection, for example, that maybe it does change something. And also in ways sometimes that are hard to calculate. I mean, I think a lot of reporting on the criminal justice system has made people smarter jurors. And that's hard to quantify. But, you know, when you compare people who have a really high regard for forensic science from television shows that are, you know, futuristic and false about, like, you know, what what a crime lab can do or whatever, compared to people that listen to a lot of these or watch a lot of these documentaries or podcasts about the criminal justice system who know that, you know, basically, unless proved otherwise, it might not even be science, like sort of operate from a default of extreme skepticism. That makes a difference when jurors are selected. So I don't know whether our reporting will result in Curtis getting out of prison. I mean, he's been tried six times. But I do think it has made a difference. To what end, we don't know. And is that what you're looking for at the end? Is that the feeling that you want to have, that you've made a difference? I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think that you're just sort of cataloging injustices that might not be acted on right away. So in a way, sometimes you're just building a record of a thing that happened at a certain place in time that might not be righted at all anytime soon. I mean, I think about a lot of journalists that did a lot of reporting about really serious issues for a very long time that never resulted in anything. You know, if you go back and look at like investigative reporting about labor conditions, you know, for years and years, reporters reporting on that with nothing happening. But their work was critical to this larger knowledge of what was going on and is really important later. So it's a weird job in that way where you're just, it's really not that you are dissatisfied if people don't respond a certain way. I just want them to respond. I mean, I think to me, like the feeling that I had when people started listening, like when we released season two, and I could tell that people were listening. It was just a feeling of great relief, you know, like, like, I believe that they would listen, but, you know, you spend a lot of time. What if people don't? So the fact that people did, I think, is, is important. But, you know, a lot of people when it came out said, well, like, when is Curtis getting out? You know, like, he must be getting out now. Like, this is crazy, right? Like, he's getting out. It's like, no, like, if anything, the podcast should suggest that that is not how the system works, you know, that someone would get out right away in a case like this, certainly not in Curtis's case. So I guess I'm feeling like I'm a chronicler of bad actions or something like that. I don't know. 
Sounds about right. Yeah. Maybe that, yeah. Something like that. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Madeline, thank you for doing this. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Tyler McCloskey. Our sponsors are longtime sponsors, the places that make this show possible, are MailChimp and Pit Writers. Thanks to them, and thanks very much to Madeline Barron for taking time. I, uh, as soon as I started listening to In the Dark, I wanted to have her on the show, and uh, I'm so glad that we found the time to do it. Go listen to In the Dark if you have not. It is uh, absolutely stunning. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.